Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucksters? What the fucking ears? What the fucking elks? What the fucking avians? What the fuck Ricans? What the fuck Tuckians? What the fuck Minster Fullers? What the fuck Berry Finns? And the list goes on. I, I can't go through it all, but I thought I'd do a little more than usual at the beginning to make this episode a bit special because it is a marker, but after a certain point, markers... As good as they are, how many, you know, what are you going to do? We're all getting older, right? And the show today is the 800th, 800th episode of WTF. 800 episodes. Astounding. We do, we do different, we've done different things at these milestones. And as, as the time goes on, they become, uh, you, you know, you, they just become another day, but you do want to to mark it because it is sort of an astounding thing. Let's let's get into the what we're doing here today in a second. Let me let me first get out that uh, you know I've got a few tour dates coming out, and I always uh, like to have you guys and gals, you people, you folks. I, I like you to come. Uh, I'm doing. I'm going to be in Boulder. Colorado tomorrow night at the Boulder Theater. I'll be at the Paramount Theater on Saturday in Denver, Colorado. The Aladdin Theater uh, in Portland on April 21st and 22nd. They added a late show in Portland on the uh, 22nd on the Saturday. I believe there's still some tickets for that left. Milwaukee, that needs a little love. Come on, Milwaukee. April 27th at the Pabst. The Orpheum in Madison, Wisconsin. Let's go, Midwest. All right, April 28th. The Pantages Theater, I'll be shooting my special for Netflix on April 29th, on April 29th in Minneapolis. There's two shows. Uh, I believe uh, those are selling well, but that second show, let's go. May 12th, Philadelphia at the Merriam Theater and May 13th, D.C. at the Warner Theater. Not many tickets left for that D.C. show and the Phillies going good. They're all going really good, but that one, man, that one in Milwaukee, what is it? What'd I do to you, Milwaukee? Huh? Where are we at? 800 fucking episodes. That is crazy. Today on the show, my guest is Jeff Ross. And that's uh, for a reason. And I'll tell you what it is. Jeff Ross was actually the very first guest on WTF. It was a different show then. 
Now, I would like to tell you that as of today, WTF has been downloaded more than 330 million times. That's a lot of times. That's a lot of downloads, man. The first episode we did was recorded at the end of August in 2009, and we posted it on September 1st, 2009. Now, where we were at, we had hijacked the studio at the Old Air America. Uh, we, we, Me and my uh, producer and business partner, Brendan McDonald, were uh, uh, you know, out of work because they canceled the streaming video show we were doing on there. So we wanted to throw something together and we had done radio together. We'd done, me and Brendan had been working together in, in some form or another since 2004. So we were like, let's figure out this podcast thing. Now, we didn't really have a plan at the beginning. Not unlike uh, I enter most conversations, uh, we th- there was no plan for the show other than we wanted to feel it out, figure something out. There were there were three segments on the first episode. There was a a story about about feeling morally justified stealing stevia from Whole Foods, which also became an essay in my my book. We uh, we talked to Jeff Ross, who was on the phone, and we did a WTF moment at a Ralph Lauren store. Now, the original intention of the show was for it to have a variety of segments, all right, which we did uh, for the first few dozen episodes. There was some movie talk. There was some conversations with my father. It was a kind of a, a variety show to a degree, but there was this umbrella idea of what the fuck. You know, the most important philosophical question is not the meaning of life. It's what the fuck. And it was really, that was the spirit that ran through the thing. Now, Jeff ended up being our first guest. I because at that not unlike now, there were certain guests and at that time we had no track record who were out doing things and you know we could get them. And I knew I, I wanted to talk to comics. I liked comics. I was a comic. I am a comic. I know how to talk to comics. We're all of the same community. But we had put a few in the can, these shorter conversations, uh, with I think Patton was on the phone over his book. I think John Oliver and we had those in the can, and we were, we had some things with, to work with to put together the first show. And maybe I should play this thing, because, because this was interesting, listening back to this show. Because obviously the show became a very different thing over time. Uh, you know, once I got out here, we, we had sort of foregone the multi-segment format. No more phone interviews. I can't stand doing phone interviews. Rare occasions where a friend of mine needs to plug something. For most of the hundreds of episodes, there's really no phone interviews. Face-to-face was what I wanted to do. Uh, At the beginning, for a while, we had a third part to the show, a third segment that was an interview with a guest that may or may not be real. And it was more of a to work with improvisers and, and do that kind of thing and improvise. But then it sort of evolved into, you know, what what it's become, which is a a a candid, connected uh, genuine conversation as best I can do with somebody. But what was interesting in listening to this first episode was that we pulled this clip. Now, I don't know that there was ever a mission statement, but, uh, but, but this was as close as I could find to it in this first show. Listen to this. I just felt like it was time to do this. It was time to focus. It was time to, to ask these questions about mundane things, about political things, about, personal things 
and just getting out there again. I, I know a lot of you have listened to me in many different forms over the years, and I think this will be the freest of all of them. This will be the most unfiltered and the most representative of, of where I'm at, and, and I'll try to keep it as personal as possible. And, and also, I just don't know what the fuck half the time. So I hopefully, you know, through this show and through uh, hanging out with you people and my friends and some comedians, we're going to have Jeff Ross on here in just a bit. So you heard that. It, the, the amazing thing about that is all of that remains pretty true, including the fact that we're going to have Jeff Ross on in just a bit here. But what sort of evolved, you know, in the show is we were never rigid about the format. We basically let things evolve. We, were, we always knew why we were doing it because of where I was at in my life and because we were hungry and wanting to do something, it wasn't so much ambition, it was a compulsion. You know, we had this need to create a connection and the true evolution was realizing the true connection happening during intimate, empathetic conversation. And, and that's really like you'll hear, that's ultimately the difference between Jeff, you know, in show number one and Jeff in show 800. He never got his full hour interview. This is... His real WTF interview, the interview that he, that the show evolved into, what we do here. It was a great conversation. And it was interesting because at the beginning, you know, I was calling my friends so we could have some funny conversation. Yeah, I mean, that was it. You know, you get some laughs. You can always count on a comedian. I mean, I knew that from doing radio. When I did radio, both as a, a host of a radio show and as somebody who appeared on radio, when the comic walked in, you're like, if this guy's on his game, you know, my, my job is going to be easier. So when I'm a guest on a radio show, I always try to show up, be present, be funny, go with the flow. And when I had people on my radio show, uh, you were hoping for the same thing. Sometimes people shit the bed, but I knew comics were dependable. But what I didn't understand about me and about comedians was that it's one thing to, get, to turn to a comic to get some laughs and good feelings. The other thing is turning that comic into a person to find out more about who he is and what I learned over time and if you'll listen to the first many episodes in talking about comics was that we're not we're very well equipped most of us comics to have conversations about anything because that's what we do we sit and think about things about everything and we live our weird lives that are outside of the mainstream for for the most part I would say for all of it we're a bunch of gypsies and rogues and you know, strange people, you know, perverts, uh, heavy hearted, depressives, uh, you know, hyperactive, compulsive, needy, funny, uh, loving, sensitive, all the good things, too. A lot of times I forget to to put the uh, to compliment the bad list with the good list. And it's not it's just human he, comics were my entry into being a person who was empathetic in conversation, who enjoyed listening to people. I mean, I, had, I hadn't really had that since I was a kid because I'd gotten cynical. And, and just to, you know, you know, to really learn things about not only people, but about life. And the difference between number one and 800 is profound, but the evolution you know, makes perfect sense in that we honored that original idea. But to mark this part of the evolution by talking to Jeff. Jeff, who is, you know, really uh, in terms of personality and being and, and comedic style is a, a kind of ever-present voice in comedy since the beginning 
of comedy in a way. And I talked to him a little bit about that. But yeah, before I go into this conversation, I do want to say thank you uh, all. And um, thank you, uh, uh, you know, to, to everybody who's new, to everybody who's been through it with me. Thank you for, for hanging out. You know, we were able to, uh, to really make something here and to continue to make something. And every time I come into this garage, no matter how much I'm full of anxiety or panic or dread or, or whatever's going on in my life or whether it's relative to the person I'm about to talk to because I don't know what's going to happen or whether it's relative to the world outside or to something I have going on in my life that's making me crazy. As soon as someone comes in here and sits down in front of me in that orange chair across the way and I connect and we start talking, all that other stuff, all that other stuff goes away and I'm locked in and I'm listening and I'm engaged with another human being and I'm engaged with you guys out there, you people out there. I know that you're listening in and that what's happening is something profoundly human and profoundly good and profoundly necessary, especially in the culture we live in today where these kind of connections aren't made you know, as much as they should, if at all, on a day-to-day basis. As you know, if I don't talk to someone in here a couple times a week, I start to get squirrely and cranky and aggravated and I need to do that thing that we all need to do effortlessly is... Hey, man, how's it going? What's up? I'm okay. Not really. Really? Where, where have you been? What happened there? How's everything, uh, you know, at home? Yeah? That. You got to do that. And you got to listen. Sometimes all it takes to show up for somebody else in a very deep and real way is to listen. It's important. Doesn't take much to be there for other people most of the time. Thank you very much for listening. This is me and Jeff Ross. Finally, he gets his uh, full WTF treatment 800 episodes later after being in the bathtub on the first episode talking to me from the Bellagio Hotel. This is uh, me and Jeff just a couple of days. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts go jeff ross hi bud it's good to see you man this is cool 
I can't believe you've never been here. The legendary garage. I know, but you've never been here. Congratulations, man. Thank you. 800 episodes. This is it. Like, you know, the, the, the idea was you were on the first episode, so why not be on the last? But who the hell knows when that's going to happen? So we'll put you on the 800th. The real issue isn't how you managed 800 episodes. <laughs> yeah. It's how you managed to stop talking and long enough to upload them. What is, <laughs> what are we, what is it, a roast now? What are we, is that what we're going to do? 800 episodes, buddy. Can you believe it, man? It's really incredible. I went to your Wikipedia page, and the first thing on your credits is uh, you did the w, the first episode of the WTF podcast, September uh, 1st, uh, 2009. That's a, that's a credit. I was in alone. a bathtub at the Borgata Casino. I remember. I don't remember what we talked about. It was only like 20 minutes. It was before the show was like it is now. Yeah. No, we you... talked about Dancing with the Stars, I think. Is that I what wrote... you were doing then? Yeah, or just done in the middle of it. But, it, but it wasn't like a, a like a, a real w, you know, WTF interview. It wasn't the hour sit down. I, I can't believe it's been so long, dude. I don't know anybody. Maybe Ace was doing a podcast before right. you, but I don't know anybody else who was really into that. But it, the weird thing is I've known you, I feel like, since we were children. Yeah. You remember that picture you tweeted out the other day? It was me and you and Todd and Louie and Moon. Yeah. Everybody with hair. I remember you from even further back than that. Let's let's just put it in perspective. Like, when did, did I ever resent you? How did I feel about you? Let's go real, <laughs> real classic Marin conversation. I can't believe I'm talking about myself in the third person. I remember you were getting spots at Catch a Rising Star before most of us, before me or Todd. You had sort of a mullety, dewy, curly thing, but it was definitely mullety. Mm-hmm. You always wore a jean jacket, and your name was Jeff Lifschultz. And I, if I recall correctly, you had buttons on that fucking jacket. Most jackets have buttons. No, I mean like oh. pins. Did you have pins? Oh, that sounds like something I could have had. <laughs> you don't You don't remember? Come on. No, I mean, I, I wore weird stuff back then. I would wear bracelets and clogs and... Right. You know, I, no, was, a weird, was, I was a little weird. No, but th- this was before you were a hippie, you know, before that period where... You I can't. think you might have called me Liv Schultz, but I was probably at that point performing as... When, when did you start, man? I remember you as Jeff Liv My first time I, on stage was exactly April 1st, 1989. I wouldn't have met you that first year. No, because I was in New York. I was there. I was on the Lower East Side starting 89. I moved down from Boston, and I was trying to get in. So I was at the Boston Comedy Club in 89. uh, Then you were probably doing spots, and I was probably an open micer trying to get on the shows you were on. Really? I just remember you getting past a catch pretty early. I got That is a great memory. That is something that happened. I got past there before anywhere else, which was usually people's last club for some reason— it was my first pass. I and never I, really got past there. And I remember bringing, like, Lewis a present. Lewis Ferranda? Yeah. From Catch a Rising Star? He gave me my first $20 in the business. I, I, he put <laughs> me up at the end of the night. Yeah. And he saw something that in me that I didn't yet see in myself. Yeah, I didn't see it. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I don't hold a grudge against people who didn't see it in the beginning. You can. I always tell comics that. Like, you get better. Of course, no one yeah, has everybody time for got better. Not I, funny. I, re- I remember when you got funny. I remember when uh, Todd got funny. I remember when I got funny. It was just like four years ago. Hmm. That was a, it. It happened very late. Those early days, man. You only start out once, right? But I remember. You remember we used to go over to uh, the Ukrainian place, the Kiev. I still do. Oh, the well, Kiev's not the Kiev, but Veselka's. There. I go to Veselka's too, but but like the Kiev was sort of the place. It was like me and you and Louis and Todd and Sarah and Atel. That was like the joint. It was kind of dirty, not as good as a Veselka, but I don't think the Veselka was open twenty four hours at that time. We would um, 
Commiserate. Sure. Yeah. Miserable commiserate. Is that is that sure. a, is that part of that word? Sure. And I, I would say is things com- like how'd, a, you, how'd you get into catch? How why did why'd you get past? I brought a vest for Lewis. I bought him a present. <laughs> did you? And then when my grandfather died, he 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 gave me like a little pep talk. He's like, now it's time for you. You got to think about you for a little while. Huh. So I was taking care of my grandfather in you New did? Jersey. And uh, yeah, and I thought about those days recently because they were like cutting funding for Meals on Wheels. And I remember taking the bus into New York every day from New Jersey and then Meals on Wheels would check in on my grandpa. Yeah. They'd bring him a hot meal. Yeah. And make sure he's alive for the next 12 hours while I was trying to find work in New York, trying to get on stage, trying to start my life. How old were you? 23, four. So you grew up in Jersey? Yeah. What part? Newark. Union. Oh, oh really? Springfield. Oh, yeah? And you got like a sister, right? I kind of uh, have bits and pieces. My sister Robin. Yeah. She's a special ed teacher up in up in Washington State. So w- what were you doing in there? What, 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 what kind of family situation? What did your old man do? My dad, my grandfather, my uncles, my, yeah. everyone in my family was a caterer. <laughs> my, everyone. My great-grandmother Rose, who I'm technically named after, yeah. Ross, is uh was a was a very rare female business owner back yeah. in the like 40s and 50s uh-huh. clinton manor caterers clinton manor i worked there every summer i worked there every weekend all through junior high and high school and even parts of college she owned that yeah and they do events they would do weddings and bar mitzvahs and trade shows and that kind of thing kosher yeah oh it was kosher and back when people were having big kosher weddings and really then, and then i worked in you know in the coat room as a kid and then and then and then made meatballs and wound up feeding the help and working in the parking lot and once i got to college i was like i don't think i'm gonna be a caterer i think i'm gonna try something else you're gonna break the tradition yeah so was your dad the last one he my dad and my cousin of the ross of the lift schultz caterers well my dad passed away it basically became my cousins and he, his heart wasn't in it really and and it it, it kind of I remember you off. telling me about your dad passing away, because I I remember like the one time we had this conversation. I can't remember. It must have been down in front of the Boston. I think I was all worked up because I didn't understand. You were driving some fancy car, like a a, a Dodge Viper, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were, what a memory! <laughs> is that true? Yeah. But all right. So when did your dad pass away? Well, he died when I was uh, in high school, in college. What happened? Yeah, he did cocaine. Oh yeah, living the life. He had a good time. Did, yeah, had a cerebral hemorrhage. Was in a coma for a few days. Came home from BU, and uh, you know that was that it. was it. And your mom been gone for a while, right? Yeah, she'd already been gone five years. Wow, man. So you were kind of just you and your sis, huh? Yep, still is. Well, we have a good family, and yeah, we're okay. We're all gonna. We all get together quite often i just got a beach house at the jersey shore for a couple weeks this summer really 25 of us will pile into that the cousins and everything aunt and uncle and cousins and yeah so tight that's great we do it for real do you feel connected to jersey i mean like you're i feel connected to the people i don't know if i feel connected to the state right but you feel you're jersey yeah (laughs) like when you were when you were in high school you were you a bruce guy of course yeah of course, but I feel like I would have been a Bruce guy, no, no matter, matter where I was from or wherever he was from. I think he, <laughs> it was it was in the stars. I learned a lot about 
performing, I think, watching those early Bruce shows. You know how he goes fast, and then he goes slow, then he gets two fast ones, and he goes slow. for. What, well, what did you learn exactly? Just, just showmanship. To, just to stay slow? Or just to mix it up and keep the audience surprised and... and and you know the intimacy, even in a big theater like that. I sure. And, and and just that you could stay true to yourself. And you know we all aspire to have that kind of. I think that's a good impact on their audience. I think I think him in particular is unique to that himself. Like you know, it feels earnest. It feels real. You feel special mm-hmm. to be there. Mm-hmm. And he really turns it out. Like it took me a long time to appreciate. It. I think I appreciate it more now because I talk to him. Yeah. You know, it was a great interview, and he also talked. You talked about how, you know, you can open up on stage where you, maybe you can't open up off stage so yeah, easy, and that, that that was a good breakthrough. And and I think that's why a lot of us get drawn to the stage. It's weird, right? Yeah, our lives off stage are just a mess, and then on stage you can. I don't. Maybe you're not. You always seem kind of chipper. I'm doing okay. <laughs> I have my moments. Yeah? What are they like? Are they crying moments or yelling moments? Um, <laughs> I think the worst I ever got was it's probably a, f- a year ago. I came home from a road gig and yeah. I just wasn't happy for some reason. And I grabbed a baseball bat and just started slamming the bed. Oh, really? Beating my bed. You didn't want to risk breaking anything. Yeah. But you, well, so, that's good. Did it feel good? It felt cathartic. Yeah. But I don't. I think for pretty much, I'm pretty even tempered. Yeah, I feel that from you. So you 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 grow up in Jersey. You're doing the catering. Now, were there? Did you see stand up at the catering hall? Where did you see your first stand up? Like who who were your guys early? I had on? no idea. Nothing. I didn't know what any of that was. You didn't know the Jew comics? No. I when I, I heard kid? their voices on Johnny Carson because my parents would watch it and I'd be upstairs trying to listen. Huh. But I didn't know from the old time comics. Because like I was so into him when I was a kid and you're only a couple years younger than me. Like I would look, I would watch you know, Buddy Hackett and Rickles, all the guys that you got to know later, which I envy, but they were the guys I watched when I was a kid and I loved them. Jackie Vernon. Yeah, I didn't know until later and everyone said, well, you must have been influenced by them. It wasn't. It wasn't like that for me. I was influenced by the rock star comics. Eddie Murphy, yeah. Blues Brothers, Steve Martin, Cheech and Chong. I, that's what I, I didn't even know that that was comedy. I just thought that was the same as... I bought their albums the same way I bought Kiss or Boston or oh, yeah, yeah. stuff like that. So yeah. I didn't even... I didn't know about the, the, the tuxedo comics until I was meeting them. But you weren't also, you didn't know about the culture of stand-up. You didn't really acknowledge that there were this world of stand-ups. No, I had no idea. It was alien huh. to me. I thought to be a comic, I would have to be like the guys I'd seen pictures of and, or on Johnny Carson, like, you know, Hackett, yeah. Rickles, those guys. But I didn't feel a connection to them until later. You didn't, But you didn't know their work even. Right. And I also, it's weird, like people wonder about that because of the roasts and did you know those guys? It was more like I felt like I'd met guys I should have known my whole life. Well, I mean, I feel that too about you, you know, because I remember when we were, when we were coming up in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, everybody had their own unique thing and you weren't, you weren't really doing insult comedy at all. No. You were doing observational stuff, kind of long formish. Yeah. Yeah. Stories and poems and Well, the poems came later though. Yeah. That was later, dude. Yeah. Wasn't it? I mean, I it was just straight up observational comedy right. at at a very deliberately slow pace. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I was I was a film major in college and a political science minor trying to at go BU? Yeah. Were we to there go, together? No. You're a, l- a little bit ahead of me maybe. 
But, you know, I was still running the radio station. I was a music director and a DJ. And At BU? Played in a punk band. You and, did? Yeah. I became a political science minor, and I went to Russia with my class. And with Political science? Yeah. What'd you do in Russia? Uh, I wound up uh, looking around. It was during the refuseniks. You know, yeah. I remember, like, meeting with refuseniks and sneaking their art back to America, thinking I was doing something really cool and special. What'd you, t- what'd you bring back? Just these guys, you know... There was a real problem for artists, and Jews were scared, I remember. And yeah. I just remember like going to a couple of houses and poking around and meeting people, and I was a kid, yeah. you know, but I was and also the, curious and yeah. also fearless. My dad had just died. I had nothing to do that, that Christmas. Yeah, My sister was with her friends for, yeah. for Christmas, so I was like, all right, fuck it. I'm going to go to Russia, the Soviet Union, yeah. in the winter. Yeah, and find out about vodka and eggnog and and everything else that we were trying to. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> everything else, vodka and eggnog, and the big list after that. <laughs> I just remember doing those two drinks for the first time in my life. I remember it was just super, super exciting to be in a foreign, foreign, foreign country, completely unleashed. Didn't have to worry about calling home or disappointing anyone. Or my life became very unhinged in a series of happy accidents after. After oh, Russia, after death, yeah, you go. Well, all right, well, I can. I guess I can do whatever I want. This is kind of no crazy. Parents. <laughs> no one to tell me this isn't a good idea. This, a, you know, but I also didn't have the support to. Right. Did, what your grandparents didn't step in or anything? They were all gone. I had the one grandfather who I really took care of. So that is with. kind of bizarre. Like you're sort of orphaned at 19 or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And you're still not completely grown up. Right. Wow. I don't know if I ever grew up. Yeah, I'm not sure I did either. Look at us. I know we're doing okay for children. <laughs> it is crazy. I do I do think sometimes, like, I never feel old and I never feel young. I always felt this way since I'm 15. You know what I think has something to do with that with us? We yeah. have no children. Must be part of it. I think, you know, you have children, you're like, I'm, yeah, it's happening. If they're getting taller, I'm getting older. Right. But we're just suspended in some strange non-growth thing, you know, emotionally or otherwise. But uh, all right, so when did comedy start? So you go to Russia, you come back a changed man, you've drunk eggnog. It's just more like experiences. The following year, I think I went off to Scotland with another college buddy and just seeing the world, and I knew I wanted to do something different. I just didn't know what it was. I kept thinking, I'm going to have a weird life. I just don't know what it is. Yeah. And I remember like coming out of college, I started a, a production company with my college buddy, Brian, and we were Epitome Productions making training films and trying to do commercials for like health and beauty aid stores. In Jersey? In New York City. So it was this weird little- like I you... would take the bus every day. I live in a, the house I grew up in. My grandfather was now living with me, came out of the Bronx to live with me because we were both kind of on our own. He was, was widowed and I was orphaned. Was he together? Yeah. Oh, cool. He's the greatest. I'm wearing his ring right now. Oh, that's cool. It's a bolt from a Nazi submarine that he took apart when he was in the U.S. Coast Guard. Oh, really? Yeah. Steel bolt that I wear all the time. I well, took off him right when he died. Was he one of the caterers or the other no, side? No, he was from the other side of the family. He was a construction worker. Oh, okay. Tough guy. Very, yeah. Very funny. Very awesome. My best friend. And uh, Yeah, you don't hear about tough Jews enough. He was you know the what toughest. I mean? He was... He, he was a foreman in Bronx construction union. Uh-huh. So he had a really like 
pretend he was he was tough and he had to even pretend he was tougher than he was to get respect yeah that's what always annoys me about the characterization of you know elites or the you know jews run this or that is that there was that whole generation that he comes from that came over here you know from europe or the generation after that there was a bunch of jewish boxers construction foremen you know plumbers you know cops it, it was a whole there were real there were some tough fucking guys man. yeah yeah you had to be yeah to, to get by Right, he would have to, you know, he'd get in fights with the Irish guys or something, you know, yeah. or he'd have to exert his authority to, to different groups that were construction workers. And I just remember him telling me these these stories and stuff. And he yeah. was always kind of, he was always had like big hands and big yeah, arms, yeah. and he was tough. Yeah, tough Jews. Yeah, James Con style. My grandfather would give me money for the tolls. Yeah, and a banana, take a banana for the ride, and I would go into the city and hit the open mics or. So what? So that started after the production company. What we happened? We were failing quickly. There was a. We, it, we tried everything. We tried a home investment video, home video with Louis Rukeyser, who from Wall Street League. And when he figured yeah. out we were twenty five, he was like, "I'm just going to steal this idea from them and do it myself." And he did, <laughs> and that was very successful for him. And then. And then you knew how that was your first lesson in show business. Yeah, I, I realized how, how how show business could really fuck me up when he finally died and I was happy. <laughs> <laughs> like 20 years later my friend but you carried it with you Brian called me up and said yeah. guess who died I'm yeah. like Louis Rukeyser <laughs> you know and uh, I, I just kept searching and another buddy my pal Mark Chapin said I'm taking this writing class in New York City comedy stand up I think you'd be good at it who taught that Lee Frank Lee Frank. Hi, Lee. What happened to Lee Frank? Lee's around. I just talked to him. He's writing on a show right now. He's doing great. He out here? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's yeah. great. Yeah. I remember Lee Frank. He great was a- teacher. Taught me a lot of cool stuff about stand-up and uh, encouraged me to keep going. Because there were the two. There was Blakeman and Frank, I guess, who taught the classes. I guess so. Lee Frank. Yeah, great teacher. Yeah, I remember him. I remember him as a stand-up. He told me if, it's not, if it doesn't offend somebody somewhere, it's probably not funny. Well, that's pretty good. I was like, that's words to live by yeah. for a comic. I loved it right away. I was like, wow, I get to say whatever I want. This is always what I loved about America. Yeah. Freedom of speech. Yeah. I was always that kid, like, drawing swastikas on my notebooks, like, just doing anything you could to... I did that, ex- too. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's a free country? I can I, I can do that. whatever I... Say whatever I want? You just get struck... Hit this, just hit this weird memory with me when I was in, like, second grade. And I think I was at Hebrew school, and I drew Hitler. <laughs> Pushing buttons is what yeah, it is. Yeah, I don't know pushing what I buttons. was doing or thinking, but I got turned on by the idea of freedom of speech. So yeah. when somebody said, you can just go on stage and just talk for five minutes about whatever you want, I thought, well, if I ever do this once yeah. on mm-hmm. television, I wouldn't care if I ever did it again. Just the idea that you can have that platform. Yeah. And then, of course, once I started doing it, I was like, wow, all right, this is a good way to meet girls. This is a good way to make money. This is a good way to like express myself. It gave me a social life, and immediately, you know, quickly over took time. Took right to it. I took right to it, even though there was a lot of haters telling me I was crazy. Like, I still had my production company. It was in a in the Marbridge <laughs> building in, 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 on 34th and Broadway. Yeah, it was yeah. all shoe uh, retail, uh, shoe wholesalers in yeah. that building. I remember, like, the guy next door saying, so you guys are closing up your production company. Yeah, he goes, what are you going to do? I go, well, I've been trying stand-up. Yeah. He goes, oh, well, you'll figure something out. And he <laughs> tapped me on the shoulder and wished me luck. <laughs> and, you know, the family was, like, rolling their eyes. And But you started doing the open mics. Who'd you meet first? Oh, wow. I remember Johnny Lampert telling me, don't go to catch. They'll never pass you. 
He would give me like, if you get heckled, say this, and he would give me Dangerfield lines. Yeah. So I think he was sabotaging me. Oh, really? So that if I said those, Lewis would go, that's stolen. Oh, uh, really? I think, yeah, I do think he was- Setting I you still, up? I never asked him, but he would be like, that's why, now I know why, he'd say, if somebody messes with you, say, now I know why lions eat their young. Like, it was yeah, right, like those right, kind of, right, right, yeah, yeah. I think he was testing me to see if I had ever heard any of this. Right. I hadn't. Yeah, but you didn't do it. I didn't. I kind of caught that it didn't sound right coming out of me. Who else was hanging around? So that was- Well, at the Todd Barry and I were the two backups. At catch. Yeah. Because Todd used to go up there and sit there, and I would not go up there. Right, that was where I would get on early on, and then I broke in downtown, Stand Up New York, the Boston Comedy Club. Well, who was on the stage at Catch Then? Like, I'm trying to remember. Oh, well, what that was amazing. What what I era mean, that was? Oh, well, that was like early Mario 90s. Joyner and right. John Stewart was the was the big um, closing act. Before, he wasn't famous, but before he was the Daily a Show. killer. Yeah, right. Yeah, I remember he would just lay flat on the stage and yell up at the ceiling, and he had that dirty denim jacket on and boots, and he was fearless, and he was cool, and he was Jewish, and I was like, that guy's cool. What's yeah. his name? Yeah. Oh, it used to be Leibovitz? Oh, maybe I can pull off <laughs> Jeff Ross. <laughs> better change it Let me now. use my middle name like he did. And I was like, okay. That, that was it? That's what inspired you? It wasn't even a Jewish thing. It was more like when I finally got on TV on Star Search yeah. a couple years later, they had to use a smaller font to fit Schultz, and I was so humiliated about Ed McMahon mispronouncing Schultz three times. Every time I won, it was like, your challenger, Jeff Lipschitz. And I was like, oh. And I wasn't strong enough of a comic to like not let that stuff bother me. Now it's stuff I don't care, but. Sure. Well, you got to get, you got tough before I did. I'll tell you that. I mean, Moran, Moron, Marin. <laughs> It never ends. M-A-R-K, Marin, Mark with a K, Moron. Ugh. Yeah. Try never. lip shits every time. <laughs> well, you you solved that problem. Right. You changed it. Like, you know, like all of them do. Like all of those Jews Well, it was do. just not, it wasn't a never a Jewish thing. It was always a show business. If you're no, going to no, be in yeah. show business, I was yeah. flying home from Star Search, and I said, either I'm going to have to change my stage name, or my entire family is going to have to change their last name. <laughs> <laughs> That was your first TV thing, the Star Search? Probably, yeah. And we're, and that was, okay, so you're kicking around with Stuart. This is what, in 90? 90, 89, 90. Right. Tell was kind of hosting them. I remember Reggie McFadden, oh, yeah, Sarah Reggie. Silverman bopping around the what, what Third Street, borrowing money from me so she could give it to homeless people. It does occur to me, like, the, the jobs, the, the gigs... The TV shows can come and go, but it's these relationships that sustain us. You know, look how long we know each other. Yeah, the, you know why they sustain us is because we're all selfish and we're and and generally, you, you know, the bond remains intact somehow. You know, mm -hmm. like like I'm I'm you're I'm sure you have close friends, but I don't hang out with too many people. But every time I see you, I, I don't think like, oh, what am I going to say to Jeff? You know what I mean? You, yeah. you have this community. <laughs> Where right. there's a shorthand to it, right? Like when I see Todd Berry, we used to wander around all all day long together and hang out. And I sometimes I'm sad that we don't hang out more. But when we do hang out, you know, I'm like, well, that's enough. That <laughs> no, Todd has definitely evolved into a huge pain in the ass. So it's much easier to see him once in a while, give him a hug that he doesn't want, and move on. <laughs> But I'm always happy. He just did the roast battle and he killed, but he was so hard. He's so funny though. He is, but he's always been, I, I love him and I love Attell, but you know, it's like, it, it's just, in Louis, but yeah, I see everybody infrequently, but it's always good to see him and I never feel like there's a lot of distance, but you know. Well, comics, if I haven't seen you in a while, I don't have to say, hi, how are you? What have you? you been up to? I could yeah. just say, how's the crowd? <laughs> yeah. I like your boots and you know that I'm saying, how are you? Yeah. And I, I would see you at different times, but all right. So you do star search. Did you win? I won one and lost one. What, the, the big prize? 
No, I won the first round and oh. stayed an extra few days. It was very exciting because I'd never been on a show that were other people that weren't comedians on it. Yeah. Like singers and dancers. And yeah. Keith Robinson was down there and he helped me Keith. drag. I, I really went to win. I brought like two duffel bags of clothes. Yeah. And thought I was going to be there for two months. I was there for <laughs> four days. The core group, it seemed, that I was friends with and, they, and you were always part of it, although you were up at Catch a Little More. It was me, you, Atel, Louie, Sarah, Todd. Well, you remember the ones who rise to the top. Well, no, but we were hanging out. I mean, yeah. I remember hanging out with you guys, right? Of course. But well, the all comedy scene, we were doing that's rebar. Right. You, I mean, you were there we were all the, doing our open mics downtown, but in addition to that, a scene came out of it. Yeah, but that was the weird thing. And is that's the, what I really think gelled a lot of it. But where, that, where you would actually remember it, because instead of just being friends, we were now like doing interviews together, and people would come uh, cover yeah, these things. That's and right. There's that. We would do festivals together. I remember being in Aspen for the first time when you were there. Oh, for Comedy Central. Yeah, I remember us all auditioning for Letterman together, and me that's getting right. it, and you not getting it. Oh. We're at Stand Up New York? Yeah. But, but let's talk about that, because it, we weren't doing, like, the the way alternative comedy happened in New York City was different than in, in Los Angeles, because in Los Angeles... You know, that was like, it was like Dana Gould and Kathy Griffin and the Uncabaret and then the bookstore right, and this right. and that. But we, all the guys in New York that started it, were working at clubs. Right. It wasn't like we were some like nerd crew that no. wasn't working. No, their whole thing out here was much different. Our was, thing in New York was- A new space. Li- literally alternative, like a break from what we were doing at 2 a.m. Right. Trying to get on in the real clubs. Right. And suddenly like someone said- Hey, tell a story. Right. What we're going to do without a stage, maybe not even a microphone. Do you remember, though, the very first one before Rebar? There was like two at that place. You had to walk Luna upstairs. Lounge. No, no. That was after Rebar. But the very first one, you hosted it, the actual eating it show by that was put together by Michael O'Brien, Dave Becky. That There was one show that we all did before Rebar. And then Rebar, which was a very impractical uh, performing situation, but that's where it became a thing. Was it Rebar? I remember... remember learning so much about myself from that scene because you know i wasn't an actor i wasn't a real entertainer i was just basically putting a you know trying stand-up yeah not really popping not getting on yeah the, the late night shows or mtv or any of those shows I was right not quite there yet but alternative comedy kind of loosened me up where i wasn't afraid to try to tell just a story me too and not worry about the laughs per, per minute me too I just started talking about my grandfather, and I remember I got encouraged to talk more and more about my life, and it kind of freed me up as, you know, I was always loved Garrison Keeler and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was yeah. like, okay, maybe I don't have to be so shticky. Maybe I could just talk. And that led to me going, what else can I do that I don't realize I could do? And that's when I started doing the roast. I was like, but that's I like- went to the roast as alternative comedy. I was like, it was like a hoot. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is weird. Well, wait, let's like, let, let's fill in some gaps. So you're working at Catch, and we're doing Boston, and then we got this alternative thing, and I think, like, the rebar thing, I think that's where that picture of us was taken with Moon, was at oh, the rebar. Okay. And then it moves to Luna, which is a different situation, but it's right. already hot, and it becomes, like, I didn't even realize how hot it was. I was sweaty and on coke and right. yelling. Huh. But, but, right, but you, I remember because you and Elon Gold were friars, and there was this weird push. When did you join the Friars Club? Ninety. Maybe. Oh, that late? That's about right. That's about. I, I was the last one of that group because I remember Elon. I couldn't afford it. Was like, you know, come on, we, let's make it young and hip. Yeah. Like, like they have a gym there. It's like, really? 
And I, I remember I went up there and I'm like, I can't, I can't do it. I mean, I love these old men, but, uh, you know, and, but I can't, what am I going to do up here? Right. I'm going to sit and watch Alan King eat. I love that. See, yeah. <laughs> to me, that would go, yeah. So yeah. when did you go to the first row? So it was before you joined the Friars Club. I no, that's how I joined. I got invited there to play poker a few times. With? Judy Gold, Elon Gold, and Greg Fitzsimmons is what I remember. That's, okay, I remember right. Greg's dad had been a right. He was part member. of it, right? The, first, the next wave of Friars. Yeah, and I remember I got him. I would play poker. It was like I would always play poker in you know Mark Cohen's house. Mark Cohen's overheated studio. Yeah. So now to suddenly be at the Friars Club, where a waiter comes up and says, "Would you like chicken salad or tuna salad?" And, you know, and yeah. you're, you're getting a drink while you're playing in a special air conditioned room, right? Instead of you know, instead of in bong smoke, right with, with 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 four other comics, seven other comics. So suddenly it felt very, I don't know, showbiz, legit, right? Yeah, and I loved it. I just loved that. And old school though. Greg Fitzsimmons asked me to perform at the Bob Fitzsimmons Memorial Golf Tournament for his dad, honoring his dad and a yeah. charity out in Jersey. Yeah. And I didn't play golf, so I showed up just in time for the show, and they were all drunk, all the Friars guys. Freddie Roman was hosting. Yeah. And he, like, shit on me when he introduced me. I never met him. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, here's an easy target. And I just, <laughs> for the sake of survival, yeah, started goofing on him. They call him Freddie Roman because he talks so loud and you can hear him in Italy or something like that. Just uh -huh. lighthearted. Did it work? It killed. I didn't think much of it. I just kind of did a favor for Greg. Yeah. And then like a month later, Jean-Pierre Trebeau, the head of the Friars, called me up and said, uh, would you like to roast Steven Seagal? And I was like, uh, why? Like, <laughs> they're like, I'm like, well, that's how we do our roasts. And there was no YouTube. I yeah. couldn't Google it back right. then. So I went to the Museum of Broadcasting. And I looked up the roast, the Dean, Dean Martin? Martin, and I yeah. saw, oh, it's not just Steven Seagal, who I didn't care about. It was yeah. Henny Youngman and Milton Burrow and Buddy Hackett would all be there. Norm yeah. Cross. I was like, all right, I think I could get that. And that, to me, sound like another ambitious attempt at alternative comedy. Like, oh, let me try writing this kind of comedy. So, was, like, old-timey. So, there was an ironic thing to no, it? No, not, not old-timey, but pointed. Okay. About a certain person right. on a certain date. But it's a Spe what they call special material, right? You know, yeah. And I thought, oh, okay, that could be fun, like putting a suit on and and riffing with these legends at two at one in the afternoon. That was really different. It was. What it we is. Were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, you, Todd, and a couple other people made fun of me when I would go back down to Rebar or Luna Lounge to the alt scene. Yeah. And I go, this is the ultimate in, in alternative comedy. What are you talking about? You guys are being pussies. <laughs> They're like, you're going to some safe old Jewish thing that we're trying to forget about. And the Friars and all that wasn't cool then. It's right after Whoopi Goldberg and Ted Danson caused a stir with blackface. But this, it was also in-house. This is before they were televising the right, roast. Right. You know, it, it hadn't been televised since Dean Martin, and that was its own thing. But the Friars roast was an in-house thing. Was it an honor, like, to be roasted? Is that why they did it? Yeah, they would do, like, you know, a career achievement or a man of the year kind of thing. And so who was at that first one? Steven Seagal. Steven who was Seagal was, who was on the day. Milton Berle hosted it. It was his last time emceeing one in 1990. And you'd never met him before? You no, had? I didn't meet him till he introduced me on the day. Yeah, who else was there? Buddy. Yeah, Did, had you met him? No, I didn't meet any of these, never met any this of these This was the guys. first time you met Buddy and Hackett, boom. Milton Berle, who right. else? And I walked right into it. 
Um, there's always those other weird people, like Patricia Hearst would be there, and, yeah. and the mayor, David Dinkins, would be there, right. and, and, and uh, Leon Spinks, right. and Michael Spinks, and, right. and, and, and Don King, you know? Yeah. So it was like, oh, well, not only am I not performing for like drunks at 1 a.m., these are like New York socialites yeah. and, and, and people who I didn't have to dumb it down for. Like I, I could try to write the smartest jokes I could think of. Right. And I really took to that. So, so Milton brings you up. Oh, terrible intro. <laughs> Just back from Vegas where he performed at a convention for lesbians with dildo rash. And he has to look at the card again to remember my name. And, uh, and of course, you know, yeah. I'm on late. Yeah. Some guys killed, some guys bombed. Yeah. And did you do well? Yeah, I did very well. My first time, I had some good jokes, but I had way too many. So yeah. every time my opening joke was, I looked at Steven Seagal, I shook his hand. It's 2,000 people to New York Hilton. I realize a lot of you don't know me, but I feel uniquely qualified to be here today because I'm also a shitty actor. <laughs> <laughs> you know oh, I'm so like, it was one of those ones that I'm they... like got my one suit on that I bought to do Letterman maybe one day or yeah. went for a wedding and yeah. I, you know so yeah. and and I have my notes and every time I got a big laugh Milton would poke me right in the ribs from behind the dais only I could no one could see it <laughs> and after three or four times I'm like what the fuck are you doing Milton like it was driving me crazy yeah everyone thought I had like a tick yeah. <laughs> and he's like he's like just starts messing with me so I had a few you know, I started riffing with him. Yeah, and that must have been great. And it was good. And yeah. he kind of wouldn't let it go. And finally, from like 20 yards down the dais, Buddy Hackett was like, Milton, let the kid work. Remember when you used to work? <laughs> and that was it. Milton ran down the dais, kissed Buddy on the lips. I made some <laughs> joke about the two of them fucking after the show. Uh-huh. And that was it. I have pictures in my house. You were of, in. Of Milton like hugging me and Buddy taking me out after. And, you know, and Milton, I said to him, why would... I asked Buddy, why would Milton have done that? And Buddy said, Milton doesn't like when a new guy gets big laughs. And I asked Milton, you know, after the, we'd, we'd go back to the Friars Club yeah. after, Buddy would be drinking in one room and Milton would be smoking in another room. And he, right. they'd both hold court in separate rooms. Yeah. Because one didn't like drinking and one didn't like smoking. Yeah. And, and Milton said, you know, well, you had good jokes, but they only remember the home runs. Just tell the home runs. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, that's a good lesson. So he didn't like that I was going on too long. Oh. That's what he claimed. Uh-huh. So it was a good lesson. I, I, I remember that all the time. It's like, you don't need to tell every joke you think of. Right. You need to narrow it down and, and destroy. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good note for me to, to take right now. I'm trying to put together an hour. When did you make, sort of like, feel like this was your thing? Like, you know, outside of enjoying doing it at one in the afternoon or at the Hilton, when did you oh, realize? I bought it, yeah. Huh? I, bought, I, I, I did it for fun, for fun, and I was like, wow, I'm really good at this. Yeah. I got every, I need everyone to see it somehow. So yeah. I, that's when I talked to Friars and Comedy Central and Drew Carey into getting, letting, it, letting it be on TV. Yeah. And what was the first one? Drew. It was. Drew Carey is to comedy what Mariah Carey is to comedy. <laughs> That's that, a good one. That was your opening? Yeah. So so you do Drew, and they put it on Comedy Central, and they, was that, like, I remember right at the beginning, those daises were fucking huge. Yeah. They'd Why? Have like 30 people. Why? Because the Friars would always invite every 
cool person that might want to come that was a celebrity. And then Freddie Roman would go on before the actual roast started and in, in have everyone famous take a bow. And there'd be yeah. like every actress who's ever been on a soap opera, yeah. whoever was on Broadway at that point. Yeah. You know, we, we would have people like the police commissioner would come. You know, the Friars yeah, right, was very, right. it was right. a scene. Yeah, it was a, and yeah. it was something they only did once a year at noon for two and a half hours, so everybody had to see it. So, Howard Stern would sit in the balcony out of rain, out of firing range just because he loved watching it. So you always wanted to kill because everybody was there, from yeah. Donald Trump to Howard Stern to the mayor to the police commissioner yeah. to, to, to all these notorious boxers and, and, and it's where it's where mobsters would mix with politicians and it was okay. Right. And yeah, I love that. in front of people. Like Seagal invited all these mobsters, but yet there was also like, you know. It's New York. Yeah. And, and it really- that, it, that, that was New York. It was very pure and I love that and I love being part of something that was different than the normal late night comedy scene that sure. I was in. My parents loved those guys, Don Buddy and Don and those kind of guys. So I was like, there was a lot of like, God, I wish they were here kind of moments while I was sitting there. Yeah. But my friends came and my family, my cousins, and they'd always come. My aunt and uncle got real supportive and they loved meeting everybody. So I got a big kick out of it too. So which one of the old guys did you become real friends with? Buddy. Yeah, right? Buddy and I were, were like brothers. He's a Jersey guy. He was originally from Hackensack. Yeah. His name was actually Buddy Hacker. Really? His real name, Leonard Hacker. I loved him when I was a kid. I sent away for an autographed picture to him hmm. when I was in, uh, when I was probably thir- you know, probably 14. Cause, and he sent it, he, I got one. I gotta be better. I get emails, can I interrogate? And I just delete. Oh, like, no, I usually send the pictures. I don't get a lot of them because it's sort of a dated thing, but I'll yeah. send them usually. I got to get better at I don't send outreach. just the autographs. Because then what happens is, what? like, who are those guys that hang outside at Kimmel and Conan that want you to sign shit? I'm like, what do you think you're going to get for that? You, you know the guys I'm talking about? There's yeah. like four of them. Yeah. And they have you sign pictures. Somehow they, like, know, they already have eight pictures of you in a folder. Exactly. You don't even know how they know you were <laughs> going to be there. Right. Exactly. Those like, guys. How did you know I was on a Southwest <laughs> connecting flight? <laughs> With eight pictures of me dressed like Gaddafi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are they doing with those? All right, so you do uh, Drew Carey, and that's a success for Comedy Central? Yeah, so much so that we did a bunch more with the Friars, and then we did uh, Hugh Hefner going oh, yeah. into 9-11. That was a big one. Yeah, going into 9-11? Well, it was about to be, well, 9-11 happened, and we had a roast scheduled for like two or three weeks later. Oh, did you so do it? we wound up doing it and canceling the after party, using yeah. that money towards... The Twin Towers fun, and, yeah. and it was a big thing. You know, I was a producer on the show. Just, that was a horrible time, man, you know, for months after that. It still smelled in New York. Oh, but we had But we had to decide whether to go ahead with the show, and I made I wrote a letter, which I still have somewhere, to the Friars, to Hef, and to Comedy Central saying, and this is before it was a cliched expression, I said, if we cancel the terrorists, well, win this yeah. one, let's not have a party. Yeah. Let's put the money towards the charities. And go on with the show and, and 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 start to shake this off a little bit. Yeah. And did it work? It worked. It was a great, great one of the best roasts ever. That's the one where Gilbert did the Aristocrats. Oh yeah. Jimmy Kimmel hosted. Yeah. And it was like Adam Carolla, Sarah Silverman, Cedric the Entertainer, plus like tons of other cool people that went on to become huge stars. Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert, Triumph, Patty Hearst, uh, Rich Eisen, um, they were all there just as guests. Like we, we kind of got whoever we could get after nine eleven just right. to be there. Yeah, and 
And and you were the producer. You were brought in as the producer. That was your. I thing. wasn't brought in. I was like you know. I would help people write their material. I got a co-producer credit or something. I was making very little money. And was Barry Katz involved? I was involved doing in it that? strictly for the love of the game at that point. Was that was always what was fascinating? I don't think what people know about the roast is that from the very beginning, you you guys you put together a team of writers to help people out. Uh, at that point, we had no team and no money. It was just like who wanted to try to get this going and who wanted to help out and who wanted a credit. Who wanted to get their jokes on? Yeah, yeah. Is that way you could say, "Hey, I wrote some jokes for right." Kevin James, whatever who, you know, when he roasted Jerry Stiller or Kevin's funny. Yeah, he was good. That was always the goal to just get some jokes on. To they were like currency. You had the jokes, you know. Tell me your best joke. Every everywhere I went, people wanted to hear the roast jokes. Yeah, and also because they're roast jokes, if you get like eventually you got writers to because they'd be like, there's these guys would show up and like here's a bunch of you take what you want. Right. And you're like all right, and I got better at recognizing. If somebody was funny, like, oh, I'd heard that, or that seems derivative, yeah. or people would go, well, can't you just mix them up and rewrite them for the guy you're roasting? And I'd go, some people can, but I'm now under the pressure of being good at this. Yeah. And I kept thinking for those first five or 10 roasts, like, all right, well, now I've done three in a row where I killed, five in a row where I've killed, eight, in a, this is going to turn bad eventually. Right. But it never did. I just kept doing it. And uh, the- you got better at it. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a, a specific form. And yeah. my, like, I remember when I did it, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good at insulting people if I'm not mad at them. So I, I think I could probably do it better now. Right. But like some guys were just great at it. They just found that tone. You, Geraldo was very good at it. <sighs> I miss that guy. I mean, right now, could you imagine what he would be doing? The work he would be doing? Yeah. The resistance? It's crazy he's not around. Yeah. So you did, you did roast Trump. I roasted Trump 2005 and then again 2000, I don't know, before, you know, I've roasted was, him twice. Was it on TV? One was, one wasn't. And what was your impression of him? Yeah, I mean, you saw him a lot. He was always around. Oh, I traveled with him. He hired me. I, For I, what? I went to Mar-a-Largo. Yeah? Performed in his clubs. Yeah? Plane. <laughs> really? You've been on the plane? Been on the plane. Now, as uh, let's say he, he's not president. He what was, was fun. He was. Yeah. Yeah. He's really fun, charming, paid well. Yeah. Great sense of humor. Good hosting up. Would blow off talking business to talk comedy. Are you surprised by the turn of events? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's intense. Yeah. It's yeah so, to, to know that guy. I ran into him over uh, Christmas in Florida. Had a nice chat. Really? <laughs> Still loves comedy. When, when, after he was president? No, bef after he won and before, right, before he, he became president. Be, yeah. And he was still sort of like, how you doing, buddy? Dipping his cheeseburger and mayonnaise, having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> I asked him, uh, I asked him, uh, I said, what would Joan have thought about all this? Joan? Because he loved Joan Rivers. Oh. And she won that Apprentice show. Yeah. And, and he's like, she wrote me a letter years ago encouraging me to run for president. And I was like, I don't know, man. She would have given you a hard time about a lot of this stuff. He kind of shrugged it off, like maybe, but he didn't think so. What is your impression of him that, you know, it's really about him most of the time? Do you know what I mean? Like, there, like you know, I know you, you don't really talk politics, but but do you think he really wanted to be president? I think he wanted to win. I don't know if he wants to be president. Yeah. I think he wanted to be at a, for a minute, like, because he's skipping the fun parts of being president. 
like the victory lap, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, where he got roasted. You thought for sure he'd want to go up and go, ah, you got me once, but now look who's here. And throwing out the first pitch yeah. and all that stuff. He's he's missing that. So I think this could be bad for his health. Well, think, yeah, it I could be bad. I think it's going to be bad for everybody's health. It's that's starting under, to look like That's understood. Clearly, you asked me about the man. Yeah. And right. No, I, I agree with that. I look at him. He's eating too much. He, he looks. He doesn't look well very quickly. Right. And but like the weird thing is, is that like people who live in New York, people like you, you know, who were you know sort of ingrained in the fabric of the city for all those years, you, you know, knew him. You know, he was a guy. You know, he was he was a New York phenomenon and a New York, and he was very part of the fabric of that city in a very sort of uh, uh, prominent and entertaining way for one way or the he other. He was brash, yeah, and he represented like you know no bullshit New York, right. I want to build an ice skating rink right here, Woman Rink. If he put that kind of effort that he put into the Woman Rink into healthcare, he would have passed it. Sure. He had a real tenacity that represented New York well. When he had control. Yeah, he's an old school Queens, you know, style. Well, it does frustrate me when people underestimate him and go, well, he's tweeting all night. He's not yeah. carefully thinking about this uh -huh. stuff. I go, this guy builds skyscrapers. Uh -huh. He's diabolical. He's patient. Yeah. Don't underestimate him. Yeah. So yeah, and that's a warning. This is not. We're not. <laughs> I, I I I do think that it. Yeah. Underestimating him is 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 a hobby in this country. I, well, I, well, yeah, but I think uh, right. But I think there's a, a mixture of uh, like uh, wanting to think it's chaotic and also being terrified. I, right. I don't know that it, you know anyone's uh, necessarily underestimating him. They just don't know what the fuck he's going to do next. And you know now he's. You know, you, you know, he's uh, like working uh, with all these factions that he never had to work with. And, right. and now he's, uh, you, you know, what he represents politically because of how he chose to do it and who he chose to surround himself with. He's not, you know, that, uh, you know, the whatever charm that he had when he wasn't this powerful is diminished for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But all right. So what was the B. Arthur thing? <laughs> uh, she showed up at. Jerry Stiller's roast. Yeah. Jerry Stiller was an interesting guy to roast because he fully understood the honor of it. Yeah. Like, to him, it was his Oscar. Right. He couldn't believe that he had had a career that now was going to be honored. In a roast. In that way. Yeah. In New York. Yeah. And... It was one of the first times where his son and him were going to be on stage together. Yeah. Ben was now the biggest movie star in the country, uh -huh. doing like, you know, cool movies, which Janine Garofalo was there. It was like super hip. Yeah. So now the roast was getting suddenly like a little hip factor to mm -hmm. it. And it was going to be on TV. And um, Jerry invited all his old school funny friends. Yeah. And B. Arthur came, and I see B. Arthur is on the uh, dais, but not speaking. Now, I am in awe of that woman. I mean, yeah. Maud, the Golden Girls, yeah. she was the funniest to me. Yeah. And I remember thinking, wow, it's so weird that she'd just be sitting there, but never be acknowledged, uh -huh. never take a bow, never speak. It was like, that to me, that was strange. Yeah. So I was like, I got to find a way to mention her. And I had my jokes that I worked. Didn't realize she was going to be there. So I didn't write about her or anything. It was about Jerry. 
but I just sort of wrote in my margin on my script, B. Arthur's dick. Yeah. Didn't know what the joke would be or where I what would happen, but I thought if I'm killing, and there's some a, a, a space to think, may, maybe <laughs> there's something there about her dick. I don't know why. <laughs> maybe someone said something like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'd heard that, but you know, in, in the in the walk out to the kitchen, if someone said, I don't know where it came from. I right. honestly don't. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, and. We're doing the roast, we're doing the roast, and you know, dirty words like Jerry would kind of squirm. Like yeah. he's still like, you know, he's still kind of like that. Yeah. And old school. Sandra Bernhard went on right before me. Yeah. Which she sang a sexy, seductive, lap dancey version of Magic Man, I think, uh-huh. to jerry she like ground grinded on him to embarrass him yeah and i was next sandra bernhardt holy shit i wouldn't fuck you with b arthur's dick like the joke's okay it's pretty great but what made it a home run was they only remember the home runs what made it a home run was b yeah leering at me giving me a huge take. Yeah. Like her head just turning around yeah. on the jumbotron, you know, in, yeah. the, in the, on the big screen and just making that triple into a grand slam. Yeah. <laughs> so then now they holding on her, they're holding on her. Yeah. Well, she's just looking, no one's mentioned her for an hour and a half. I'm like at the end, like yeah. she's just been sitting there. Yeah. So, you know, anybody's fair game at a roast. Yeah. And I just kept hearing about that joke. Like yeah. Somebody wrote about it in Time Out Mag in New York, and then, you know, I'd go on morning radio shows to promote my gigs, mm-hmm. and suddenly I was like, I'm hearing about this every single where place I go. I go, be, she must be hearing about it. And she was doing a one-woman show in L.A., and I was like, you know what, I'm going to go thank her and make sure she's okay with it and say hi so that when I get asked about it, I can say she took it well. And, yeah. You know, I, I didn't know anything about her. I didn't see her after. I didn't know her. And I tracked her down, and I went to her show. She did this beautiful show where she sang and told stories. She was barefoot, and 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 I waited the whole line of well-wishers. Yeah. I got in at the very end. I had flowers. I wore a suit, seersucker suit. It was summertime, and I said, Miss Arthur, that your show was amazing tonight. I don't know if you remember me. My name's Jeff. We met at Jerry's Roast. And before I could even get it out, she goes, you nailed me, you prick. <laughs> Perfect. And she took me backstage yeah. to the dressing room, yeah. fucked the shit out of me. It's one of the greatest, <laughs> greatest days of my life. There you go. <laughs> Long live B. Arthur and so, her dick. Yeah, so she was good with it. She was good with it, and I, I wound up seeing her again. She came back and did another roast uh-huh. for Pam Anderson. She was there, and I did another take on uh-huh. the same joke. How'd that go? It was fun. It was fun. People say she got mad and left early. I don't see it that way. I think she it was just long, and she didn't want to be there while Courtney Love was flashing her tits and stuff, so right. she split. But yeah, I mean, B was you know one of the best. Yeah, great. So like so you do all these roasts. You're also like you did some writing for the Academy Awards. You were one of those guys they hired for that kind of writing, right? I remember after I did that Drew Carey roast, I sent the unedited tape to Billy Crystal. I wrote him a fan letter. Yeah. I somehow looked up where his office was. I still lived in New York, but I sent it to LA to Maple Drive. Yeah. And said, 
dude, somebody had just done the Oscars poorly. And I was like, you need to do this again. I'm a big fan. I saw him on Inside the Actor's Studio. What Some of the things you said really had an impact on me. Basically, what I'm a fan letter yeah. with a VHS cassette of me roasting Drew Carey. So yeah. if you ever host the Oscars again, it wasn't even a real job. It was like, yeah. if you ever do this again, yeah. I want to come help. Yeah. And I think a year later, Barry Katz calls me and goes, I was on the phone with him. He's like, holy shit. David Steinberg's on the other line. And the Oscars were like about to happen again. Yeah. They had just announced Billy. Yeah. And he goes, hold on, I'll call you back. <laughs> That's and, Barry, yeah. Yeah. No Billy, news. Billy wants to meet with you in LA in two weeks. Yeah. So now I'm like, wow, it worked. Yeah. And I get there and I'm thinking, oh, he's going to interview me. And yeah. Maybe I'll work on the Oscars. And I walked into his office and he shook my hand and asked me to write on the Oscars before he even started to talk. So it was cool. I learned a lot. Learned, You know what I learned on that one? Besides that I could write jokes for a big audience and, and, and make Billy Crystal laugh, I learned yeah. that as hard as I was working as a struggling, starting, trying to make it name in New York and L.A., he was working harder than me. He was like directing a baseball movie about Mantle and Maris while he was host preparing the Oscars. Yeah. And, and he would write all his, you know, he did all the press. He had the musical opening. He had bits in between. I was like, oh, okay. So when you become a star, you don't cruise. Yeah. It first gets hard. Yeah. And that was really an eye-opening thing for me. Like, oh, okay. Well, you know what? This is good news because I have the... The, the 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 will to work that hard where a lot of people would see that and go oh, forget it I'm right no no that was that is an important lesson to learn that you it it is work <laughs> it's very very hard yeah and, and i i learned from his work ethic so thank you billy so in all this time so you you're living your life and do you, do you what do you, how often do you you hang out with buddy is it a regular thing by then buddy and i became like brothers where it was almost like i was the older one and he was the how much laughing Teenager. did you do? Lots of laughing. Oh, my God. And when I had a big roast, I'd call him up and read my jokes to him and yeah. he'd give me a few ideas. And I'd sit in his backyard when I was in L.A. and he had swings back there and he'd make matzo brai or chicken salad and we would eat or, you know, we'd have a drink and go to this fried chicken place yeah. in, in, in Burbank he liked. Uh -huh. And he would take me to poker games and we would do animal charity gigs together. Who was he hanging around with? He's friends with uh, a lot of animal people. Oh, yeah. It was always weird. He was friends with Dom DeLuise and his wife, and he was friends with Shecky, and he was friends with How Sid you Caesar. Oh, yeah. And we would go to Norby Walter's poker game. They'd have Chinese food. Yeah. I don't think I've ever told this before, but I just remembered it the other day. Norby's an old comic? Norby was a music business guy that got yeah. kicked out of the music business for payola. Uh-huh. But since he broke, like, Grandmaster Flash and... And 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 all these guys. Yeah, he would. Uh, he was legendary. You'd right. hear him mentioned in like early '90s, late '80s rap songs. Oh, okay. So he's that guy with like gold records all over his apartment. Mm -hmm. So you know, you'd see him with like Grandmaster Flash, and then you'd see him with like Buzz Aldrin. He was right. one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he was super cool. Yeah. But I remember he had this regular poker game. He couldn't be in the music business anymore, but he still had all these Hollywood friends. So he had this nice apartment. Um, and you know, like young comics would go later on, but in the beginning it was just kind of me. And Buddy brings me, and Sid Caesar's playing, and Charles Durning's playing, and and Charles Durning had this great thing he would do once once a game. Yeah. Remember Charles Durning? Yeah, of course. Right, great, great character, actor, actor, great yeah. actor, and he was a war hero, and among other things, and and 
he'd let he'd let every was when the game was particularly kind of dull, he'd wait until it gets to his bet and he would just say, Two time Academy Award nominee Charles Durning checks. <laughs> 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 and then I remember one time like Norby would put out a little Chinese buffet. Yeah. And Buddy Hackett and I are standing at the buffet. Yeah. Like with our plates shoveling food into our mouth not taking the time to even sit down yeah at the at the t- just before the game starts just standing there eating yeah and behind me i look over and i see harry hamlin from la law number one show at the time tan gorgeous eating some fruit salad sitting mm-hmm. politely by himself and i was like buddy that's why he looks like he looks and we look like we look yeah two fat jewish comics eating yeah. chinese food yeah and bunny kind of looks at me and looks at him and he goes yeah, but in 20 years, he'll look like shit and we'll still be funny. <laughs> well, another good one. <laughs> yeah, that's a good it's one. It's true. I saw Harry Hamlin recently. <laughs> Don't look that good. Not anymore. <laughs> so you became close to Sid. You used to go to the hospital, right? I used to see Sid at his house. I would go to Sid's house. When he was sick? Yep. When he was sick. We had uh, my friends. Uh, my friend Fran would uh, would have these uh, dinners in his honor for his birthday, or it was a Jewish holiday. And yeah. she'd invite Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks and Dick Van Dyke, and then a couple comedians that Sid liked, Richard Lewis and myself. Mm-hmm. I was always the youngest. Um, I really had a great affection for Sid. Sid had the best laugh like if you made Sid laugh you yeah. would, you'd think you were gonna kill him yeah I have a picture on my fridge in New York of Sid just laughing at a joke at, a, at something and and you know it was the only time where I really saw Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner back then and I and that you could really see the the love they had for Sid because yeah. he kind of discovered them sure and when, I remember later in the later times when Sid was really kind of out of it in, in a wheelchair almost and uh and he wasn't really sure if he was there for his birthday or if he had a show. Like he was, he would come in and out of sort of reality. Yeah. And I remember like Mel would walk in right ahead of Carl, and Mel would get on one knee right in front of the wheelchair yeah. and go, "Sid!" <laughs> Just loud enough for me. He goes, "Sid, it's your friends Mel Brooks and Carl Ryder," <laughs> and they would do it like a big opening, yeah. like with their arms out. Like, yeah. Like, like a real stance and Sid would just light up he just loved that you know it, that's a beautiful thing it was amazing it was amazing <laughs> good and, friends and, and, and I got to become friendly with those guys because of that where they oh, that is so funny it's so sweet it's your good friends yeah Mel, you know, but he was saying that kind of in jest, like, of course we're your good friends. But no, but like because he was in and out, yeah. he just wanted to deliver it. Right, right to him, right, right. in his face, and yeah. Sid would just light up. And, oh, that's great. And Sid always held your hand when he talked to you, yeah. and, you know, he was always real sweet, and he yeah. never had a mean thing to say about anybody, and, uh. you know, he would he would invite me when he, to these weird things where he'd get honored by some strange weird group yeah you know and yeah i'd always come up and make a few jokes about how old he was uh-huh the jokes got funnier and funnier every year as sid got older and older <laughs> <laughs> look at this place i've seen younger faces on cash <laughs> right yeah you yeah, just yeah go for it and you became friends with mel too mel mel was so intimidating in the beginning because it's mel brooks yeah but we got to know each other 
Drew, though, Sid, he really loves Sid, and he, he always thanked me for being nice to Sid yeah. and talking about mm-hmm. Sid in a nice way to other people. And my Uncle Murray was in his late 80s, almost 90. He'd never been to L.A. My Uncle Murray was a caterer. Yeah. Before that, he was a Silver Star, Purple Heart, World War II hero, medic. Yeah. A really amazing guy. Yeah. He'd also traveled the world and had the most full life ever. We called him Mean Murray mm-hmm. because he was like the family ball buster. He yeah. really toughened my skin up as a kid. Yeah. So Murray's never been to L.A. This is like three, this is like three years ago. Really? Yeah. And I said to Uncle Murray, I said, well, you're going to come to visit me. Come visit me. You know, we'll go to Jared's Bar Mitzvah in Seattle, and yeah. then we'll, you'll come visit me for four or five days. Uh-huh. And I go, as it's, it's a couple months out now, I said, if you, what do you want to do in L.A.? You've never been to Hollywood. You've been all over the world three times. Yeah. You walked across Europe in World War II. You went back to every nice hotel. You had the best. He outlived two wives who yeah. died of breast cancer. He goes, I want to take a picture. I want to shake hands with Mel Brooks. I go, well, that ain't happening. What else you got? <laughs> <laughs> so I start writing Mel Brooks through his office. I knew who his assistant's name was. Yeah. And I don't hear back. Yeah. And now my Uncle Murray's there. He's in LA. We're having fun and it's getting closer and he forgot about Mel Brooks and all that and I'm taking him here, taking him yeah. there. Yeah. And now it's 4th of July weekend and I go, all right. Fuck it. Yeah. I'm calling Mel Brooks's office. Yeah. Get the assistant. I said, I know I kind of know Mel from yeah. Sid and this is this. And he just, you know, I think you guys would, you know, my uncle's a war hero and he just wants to shake hands. Is Mel anywhere in town? And he goes, oh, I'll tell Mel you called. Hmm. All right. I have to go to the dentist. My got a tooth falling out. <laughs> take my uncle Murray to the dentist in Beverly Hills and it's just a miserable fucking morning and yeah. now I'm have nothing to do so we're just driving around Beverly Hills after and showing my uncle around Beverly Hills how old is nice he to, he's almost 90 yeah and at the top of Mulholland my cell phone rings it's Mel where are you <laughs> I'm at the top of Mulholland with my uncle Murray I really think you guys would like each other you have a lot in common the only thing we have in common is that I'm a nice guy <laughs> <laughs> I go well. He, my uncle, you just you know come meet, you just take a picture of five minutes, anything and all. He goes, I'm either going to be at my office or the barber. I'll call you back in an hour. <laughs> and I'm panicking because I'm at the top of Mulholland where my phone wouldn't work. And now yeah. it's Mel Brooks calling me. Ten minutes later, Mel says, "Can you be at my office at, at Col- in Culver City in half an hour?" I go, yes, there's no way we can get there in half an hour. We're yeah. in shorts. Yeah. You know, we, I never saw my uncle move this fast. We <laughs> screech into my driveway, put on long pants, get right back in the car. I've never seen the guy nervous. Now he's practicing lines. It's good to meet the king. Can I call you? You know, uh, like yeah. stuff like that. My uncle's really, I mean, he's done it all. Yeah. But this was like making him nervous. We yeah. pull into Mel's office. My uncle had bad, bad knees. He flies right up the stairs to Mel's second <laughs> yeah, floor office. Yeah. You know, yeah. the door opens and you, you could tell Mel's got five minutes. Yeah. An hour later, they're best friends. <laughs> they know all the same caterers, the same deli owner from Brooklyn to New Jersey. They both were in Patton's Army. They're talking Yiddish. 
that that you know they're they're setting each other up they're cr- my uncle was very funny they're yeah. cracking each other up i can barely get a word in i don't need to get a word in i'm just watching it and they really had it was great it was like one of the greatest things ever mel signed a bunch of a book and gave it to my uncle and walked this out and my uncle who always had a witty comment or something to say yeah. He, he walks, the door closes, Mel walks him out, the door shuts to the office, we're walking down the hallway and my uncle goes, wow, 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 wow. Just can't stop saying wow. We went out to eat after, it was just the greatest thing ever and 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 I remember him coming back to New Jersey telling everybody about his meeting, never mentioned me in the story <laughs> once, just told everybody about how he hung out with Mel Brooks and you know, maybe six or eight months later, within a year, my uncle passed away, and I'm back at talking to at Sid's house. I think it might have even been Sid's funeral. I yeah. see, I see Mel. How's your uncle Murray? I said, Well, you know, he he passed away, but what you did for him was pretty amazing. And 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 Mel would oh that whole year when I would see Mel, he would tell everybody how nice he was to my uncle Murray. Right. You know, oh, he said, How's Murray? How's yeah. Murray? He can remembered everything about it. Yeah. And I said, you know, Mel, it meant so much to me. And if any of your uncles ever want to have lunch with me, I'm in. And Mel always loves that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was. That's a, great. It was, it was a cool. It was a mitzvah. That's it really, really something. So wh- when did Buddy pass away? 2003. Yeah, that summer, suddenly, heart oh. attack, oh, that's beach house. Best way to go, huh? Uh, I guess he didn't take care of himself. He wasn't really performing anyway. He kind of had stage fright in, into his 70s. It's Is weird that what how happened? that happens a lot. It do, it happens to people older in Their life. Their confidence shakes and... Uh, well, you forget how much it takes. You, like you get, if you're in it, you're just doing it. And then if you get away from it, all of a sudden it's like, oh my God. How am I going to do? Yeah. That's got to come back, like right? He wasn't really performing and that's when, that was a, I felt really lost. You know, he was like... I had a lot of time invested in that friendship. Yeah. You know, like a real mentor yeah. thing. So when losing him was tough and I really felt lost. And that's sort of when I started to find other things in my comedy and Like what? what? Poems? No, I went to Iraq. Oh yeah. Not for any other reason than I didn't know what else to do with myself. But that but that changed your life too, right? The yeah. performing for the troops. You mean you, you were existentially depressed. It's like making fun of drunk people, yeah. Kind of talking about like Hot and pussy, and so you had stage, and so like what you were like, what am I doing with my life? Yeah, a single, yeah, and just kind of doing it for the, I don't know, just didn't have a purpose. Didn't really have a direction and a purpose, and a, it wasn't big enough. Uh huh. I don't know. You wanted to uh, to give something back. I didn't even know that. Yeah, but I remember I was at the improv, and Drew Carey was like, even before that, when Bob Hope died. Yeah. Now we're like at war. America's back at war, and that yeah. was depressing. And yeah. Bob Hope dies, and I'm looking at the cover of the New York Times, and the, I'm sitting in Washington Square Park, and I see Bob Hope on the cover of the New York. And I never gave a shit about Bob Hope. He was so yeah. boring. Those right? Jokes were so boring to me. Like, wasn't my generation? Sure. Wasn't even my parents' generation. It was the one before Buddy Hackett. And yeah. And but I noticed he lived to a hundred, and he had all these like medals, and was the only you only British citizen ever made an honorary vet. Only Americans. He was British, but he only Amer- ever made an honorary vet by the uh, 
military. It's like, uh, wow. oh, that's what a comic can do? Uh-huh. What is that? What was that about? And then I remember showing it to my mailman in New York, and he was an African-American guy in his 50s at the time. Yeah. And like Bob Hope died, and look, and, it showed, and he, started get, he started to get like emotional. He's like, I was in Vietnam, and that guy showed up, and he didn't have to, and I was miserable, I was suicidal, and he made me laugh, and I was like, wow. And then by coincidence, a couple of weeks later, I'm at the Improv in Melrose, and Kathy Kinney and Drew Carey are like, we're going on a USO tour. And I was like, oh, that sounds wild and like a cool adventure. Kind of reminds me when someone asked me to go to Russia after my father died. Yeah. I was like, all right, I'll just go. I got nothing to do. I'll go do that. You're in the shadow of death again. And I was like, had a couple beers and yeah. I agreed instantly and I woke up sober the next day and read about the UN headquarters getting bombed and Saddam's on the run and the whole war is like looking like pretty ugly and I tried to get out of it for a month. I was like, oh God, my parents, if they were alive, they would kill me before they would let me go to a war zone. Right. It was really intense. Yeah. And the insurgency was just starting and I didn't want to go anymore and I had an expired driver's license and I had no passport but they somehow worked it all out even though I was trying everything I could not to go <laughs> and my yeah. buddy Steve Ross somehow managed all the paperwork he's a friend of mine and Drew's and he got he got seven comics uh, into Iraq around the Sunni Triangle uh, and we did shows a couple shows a day Black Hawk helicopters our, hel- our, our, our our hotel was mortared, the Al Rashid Hotel in the Green Zone. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is what it really feels like to be alive. And not only that, I'm doing comedy with a little bit of a different energy out here. And they're way more diverse and sophisticated, the audience, than I had imagined they would be watching war movies. I right. didn't know soldiers. Yeah. I only knew a couple of old World War II guys, my uncles, but I didn't yeah. really know what it was like to be in the military and to see that they're not like yahoos like you saw in Apocalypse Now and stuff. It was more like, oh, they're like engineers and technicians and moms and dads and every ethnicity. And it was much different than I had anticipated. And mm-hmm. I really liked it. And I, I liked that everybody was thankful and gracious and and they weren't drunk. Yeah. They were they appreciative. Are. Yeah, I bet. They were kept thanking me for coming and I was like I should be thanking you I got a lot out of this <laughs> and also you're 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 in the service <laughs> yeah I made a documentary that you know br- brought me right back to my filmmaking roots I made mm-hmm. a, I shot the whole thing on that trip kind of as a home movie and then wound up realizing that some of the comics were going through something very emotional um, Blake Clark was a Vietnam vet. Yeah, Blake now, Clark. Suddenly he's back in helicopters yeah. over a war zone, and he would get very telling me these stories. And the soldiers were telling me stuff that they wouldn't tell anyone else. They yeah. were opening up to me. So that became the next year and a half of editing this documentary of home footage that called Patriot Act and showed it at film festivals. And I think my comedy started to evolve a little bit from that. Um, I bet you probably evolved as a person. I think I did. Yeah. I, I started paying my taxes. I started voting. I started, I got a valid driver's license. Mm. I started like upping my game a little bit. As a grown-up and a responsible American. And I was also doing comedy that was, you know, not quite as silly. And roasting had a little different purpose for me there. It was uh-huh. like... And 
and I was proud of the movie I made, Patriot Act, the Jeff Ross home movie. You can pick that up. I know that you shot your that the the last special out of prison. Yeah. Now, what was the incentive for that? Um. Well, roasting became predictable in that it was always a celebrity, and to mix it up, I would do something different every time. Yeah. And I kept thinking, well. Why do I always have to wait for celebrities? What if I just started bringing the audience up? So I started doing that in my live shows, which I still do. Yeah, I've seen that. And I thought, well, what if I started roasting inanimate objects or ideas or then... Right. I thought, like, crime. America was getting violent. Game of Thrones was getting big. And, yeah. And video games and... and and I started reading a little bit about um, minimum drug sentencing and weird other things I didn't normally know that much about. Yeah. And I started thinking about my own past, selling pot in high school and how lucky I was. I kind of didn't get busted. Or yeah. And I thought, like, well, what's a fun thing to roast? Like, crime in America seems interesting. Then you got to personify it somehow. And that, to me, meant orange jumpsuits. Now I go, how do I find a jail that's going to let me do a show there? And could, would it even work? Other comics had tried. Some had done it. Paul Rodriguez. Paul Rodriguez did it. Monique did it. But they were all 20 years ago or 15 years ago. And none of them were roasting. I spent months and months and months and months writing an act just for them. Yeah. But didn't have a them. No jail would let me in. It was way too sensitive. Yeah. And there's all kinds of laws about certain types of jokes in jail. Yeah. Like it falls under some American law where yeah. you, you can't even do certain th ethnic jokes, rape jokes, those kind of things. Don't, it's against the law to do that in a jail. So I had to find a jail that would let me in, and I finally found the one. Only one said yes, and that was in Brazos County, Texas, Yeah, where they have a lot of autonomy. The local sheriff, the jail administrator, Wayne Dickey, saw it. He thought he could use it by getting his inmates to behave for a month in order to get access uh -huh. to the show. Yeah. So admission was a month of good behavior. And they'd never had that many inmates in one room at one time, so it was a huge security issue. Uh -huh. But they take law enforcement very seriously in Texas, almost as seriously as I take roasting. And it was a good fit, and I went in, I did the women's jail, I did the guys. And just the other day, I was at a college, and some kid like came running over. He's like, dude, I was in the audience at the jail, and now I just saw you at Florida International University. I'm a freshman. It's like... I mean, it had an impact. Yeah. And the whole theme of it is second chances. And shortly after that, the president went and spoke at a jail. And shortly after that, the Pope went to a jail in Philadelphia when he was in America. And I thought, I hadn't seen any of that before. I think I, I'm not saying I did all that, but what I think, I do think it helped sort of take some of the stigma out of the inmates uh -huh. and it made it a little cooler to talk about. Whereas not everybody really understood what was happening in jails just to, you know, since then the Obama, um, he let a lot of nonviolent drug offenders out. And I think roasting can be healing and roasting can be about second chances. And I, I found that I was doing that with celebrities like Charlie Sheen was having a rough year. We roasted him. He came back with a new show and we roasted Bieber and after all his weird stuff and, and acting like a punk and suddenly he had a number one album and worldwide tour. And I was like, what if I did that for like actual human beings who could, who, <laughs> could, who, who deserve, who can, who could benefit from it? It has so, a humanizing component. And then I went and did the cops. Yeah. 
the cops were getting demonized, not humanized. And I remember thinking I loved cops as a kid. They were my karate teachers. Yeah. You know, and what do cops think about what's going on with Black Lives Matter and and, and all these bad cops um, upstaging the good cops? So I went, the only big city police department that would let me in was Boston, where an unarmed person hasn't been shot by the BPD since in 25 years or something. So they had a lot to brag about. Yeah. So, and community policing and stuff like that. And I thought, well, cop, actually, cops were a very skeptical, tough crowd, much tougher than the inmates. Yeah. So that one's out there too. You can watch them both on iTunes. You, Jeff you, Ross Rose Cops. Did you get, did you, uh, did you get them? I did eventually. I, the first time I tried to perform for them, I bombed terribly. And that's in the special, actually. I mean, they, I really, they protested me by not laughing. They didn't trust me. The union reps had seen that I had gone to a Black Lives Matter rally in Washington Square Park. And the brass never explained to the unions that, that I was coming and that I was there to be diplomatic. Know, yeah. Try to find common ground. Right. But the running theme in the show is which side are you on? The Black Lives side says that with their signs literally say, which side are you on? Mm -hmm. Then the cops say, you're either with us or against us. Right. And I thought, can't you be on both sides? I mean, this is a complicated issue. And I don't know if it'll ever get better, but it seems like people are talking to each other more than they used to. But the to. second show went well? Yeah, I went back after doing a bunch of ride-alongs and winning them over, and I did a show uh, as a Cops for Kids with Cancer fundraiser yeah so they were able to come and kind of have fun with it and loosen up a little bit and it wow. wound up being a pretty cool show actually well so now that we're you know even more polarized and you know it becomes about like uh like liberals and right wing and you know uh democrats and republicans and like i think about that a lot have you thought about how to bridge that gap yeah i do think that there's some missed opportunities lately the, the one thing is, I thought that White House Correspondents Dinner would have been a good place to find some... Yeah, but he pulled a plug on that. Yeah, to find some, you know, to find some civility between the press and the White House. Mm -hmm. And I think things, I don't know, that one's a tough one. And how's the roast battle business? That's great. Do you, great. you think it's good for comedy? Oh, yeah. It's so good. I, I you know, when, when What's was, your problem with it? I just never went up to you know. It's like I I it I love watching roasts and I like celebrity roasts and I like what you do and I like the idea of roasting, but the the whole the competition I don't like competitions, uh, uh, comedy competitions. This is a tournament. It's not a, a traditional. It's not like Star Search or Last Comic Standing. Yeah. This is the only roast battle on Comedy Central, which we'll do again, is the only show where comics who aren't in the competition come to watch their friends. And it's giving voice. It's giving a lot of the comedians who do it are doormen at the comedy store. Right. Or, it's or very open it's specific. It's not like, you know, what's your best five? It's right. like, you know, it's got a context and, you know, you're going to go at it with this guy and, right. and, and there's no holds barred. And the job is to deliver the goods. It's not like, you know, you're not sitting there going, what's my best five or how do I get on Kim or whatever? Right. No. It's like you're a soldier here. Right. Yeah. And it's liver. It's, you know, you're funny or you're not funny. You kill or you don't kill. 
and it's it's giving opportunities to a lot of comedians who wouldn't get it. They get to show off their writing. It's a lot like wrestling. So, yeah. th- you know, people are into it. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the few safe havens left for politically incorrect or sure. provocative comedy. Right. We say everything. And, you know, maybe we're a little older. The young comics, they don't get offended the way yeah. older <laughs> people get offended. Yeah. You can so say you really it. go. So we really go. And also go. it's directed at the person in front of you. Right. So, so if, as long as they're going to take it and they're all right with it, who are you to fucking judge? And it's everybody from Frank Castillo, who works the door at the comedy store, Frank, yeah. to Jimmy Carr, who's a worldwide star. star. You know, it's very fun to see different personalities right. all levels all levels it's an it's a even playing field it's with the gr- roast battle it's a great sort of equalizer well, in, that, good, in that thing so we love doing it and um it's one of the fun it's just also like a party there's always like wild scene there and chicks and snoop dog came and waka flocka was there the other day and we just do it for fun on tuesdays at the comedy store well you know how to have a good time it seems that's the life man i know i, I, I enjoy I, the process that's what I always tell myself. And you've had a uh, you know an amazing life. I mean, even since you know we talked on the first WTF. I mean, all this stuff has happened. You know, you represent you know the history of comedy somehow. To me, you know, like like you're you're a grounded force that is seems to have always been there. And your respect and and love and admiration and your ability to learn from these old guys and then honor them. You know, in in your life and also. You know, as a comic, you know, it always touches me. But now it's other stuff that you know, you, you know, with the the troops and the prisoners and cops and you know the the equanimity, if that's the right word, with the young people, the young comics with the roast battle. You're a good guy, good hearted guy. That's nice to hear. Thank you, Mark. It's great talking to you, buddy. Thanks. Let's tell for a Mark Marin story real quick. You got one. So you know this story. You might not remember it, but you you'll remember it in a second. But Ugh, is it going to hurt me? Nah. All right. What could hurt you at this point? Nothing. Maybe something. Go ahead. We're in Boston. We're both Boston University college graduates. Now we're out of school. Yeah. You know, I'm out a few years, and Mark's probably out five years. And we're booked at some Chinese restaurant in Boston for a oh, couple for the, days. For the, the Jewish thing? No, oh. no, 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 no. We're like Nick's or something. Uh, one of the Oh, the Kowloon. Clubs. So whatever that place was. And Saugus. So Mark's headlining and I'm either emceeing or middling and yeah. we're at the condo that the club owns in yeah. downtown Boston. Yeah. You know, yeah. it was a shitty condo, but still nicer than my apartment. Thrilled to be working with a respected comedian that I kind of knew from New York, but we were becoming friends that week and we did our first night and it went pretty well. And maybe you weren't thrilled with your set. Maybe you were doesn't matter you always had insecurities yeah and you're funny but you weren't confident right and i knew you just enough to know that <laughs> and i'm um, yeah. the next morning we're in the condo and now there's a big headliner bedroom where you're in yeah there's a little tiny mc bedroom where i'm in and in between is a big long living room this roach infested shitty condo and all of a sudden, about 10, 11 in the morning, you know, we'd been up late. I hear your door like creak open, your bedroom door, and I hear like, like you walk across this long linoleum floor. You knock on my, ah. 
<laughs> you crack the door open. You peek one eye in. Yeah. I go, what? Then your nose comes in and the rest of your face. Yeah. I go, what? You, you go, hey, Jeff. I go, what? You go, I'm funny, right? <laughs> I go, yeah, Mark, you're really funny. You're really funny. You were funny last night. Yeah. You go, you go. I'm right. I'm going back to bed. <laughs> you close the door. You went back to bed. <laughs> that should be the name of your next special. I'm funny, right? <laughs> so happy anniversary. 800 Thank episodes. Thank you, buddy. That's fucking crazy, dude. Thanks, man. Eight, whoever thought America's alternative comic would be the biggest star fucker in Hollywood. Oof. It's a joke. It's all right. I'm funny, right? You interview celebrities. I'm funny, right? Right? Uh, yeah, no, I, it's all right. I, 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 I can take a joke, Jeff, and I'm just happy that, you know, you found your, your, your groove in this very predictable format that, you know, seems to work for you over and over again. It's about roast? Yeah. I've made it unpredictable, didn't I? <laughs> you don't know what See, I'm roasting next. You I don't, don't even, know who I'm roasting next. I don't even know how to take a shot at you. You just absorbed it, and then you made it like real conversation. It's like kung fu. It's like verbal jujitsu. Oh, God damn it. I got to get better at it. Maybe I should do a roast battle. That'd be so. Why don't you come judge with me one time? Okay. Warm up a little bit. All right. See what you got. All right. Thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Happy anniversary. Thank you. I love Jeff Ross. That was a nice conversation. We caught up. We talked about old times. He shared some stories about some people. It made me choke up. It moved me. What a great way to celebrate the 800th episode. Uh, also, Jeff Ross is performing August 3rd at South Shore Music Circus in Cohasset, Massachusetts. And it's our old stomping grounds. August 4th at Cape Cod Melody Tent in Hyannis, Massachusetts. Go see Jeff. Thank you again. Thanks for listening. I like talking to people, and I'm glad you like listening to it. And I'll play us out. I'll play us out.